Hello, my fanist friends. Welcome to my podcast feed. Powered by ACAS Plus, here's a joke from my son. What did the bum say to the other bum? That's a bummer. You know, not for everyone. Uh, so, uh, look, thanks to everyone who's come to see the previews of Can I Have My Ball Back. It's been going really, really well, and uh, I'm really pleased with how the show's turning out. It's officially on tour now from Wednesday. I'll be at the Leicester Square Theatre. A couple of tickets left. Lots of press coming to that one. It'd be lovely to sell out, but there are a few other London gigs not selling as well. So if you're going to come to London... Maybe look up those other London gigs. And then this week I'll be in St Albans on Thursday, Gloucester on Friday, Chorley on Saturday, which is sold out. You can join the waiting list. And Glasgow on Sunday, two shows. I think the earlier show is sold out. Check with the venue, but the later show has some availability. Come along if you can. If you enjoy these podcasts and like them being free, then the great way to pay me back is to buy a ticket to a show or buy a download or a book from gofasterstripe.com. But you can just keep listening for free as well. That pays me back also. So, you know, no no pressure. But I'd love to see you there. If you just know me from the podcast and don't know me as a stand-up, I'm pretty good as a stand-up. It's a good show. I think you're going to enjoy it. It's only made about seven men faint so far. So, you know, are you brave enough to take the challenge? Let's sit back, relax and enjoy whichever podcast you're listening to now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, welcome to another book club. This week we are joined by Francesca. Trance- I can't believe I've messed up the Francesca again. That's what I did last time. I'm so, I'm so worried about the Stavrakopoulou that I can do easily that I can't say Francesca. Francesca Stavrakopoulou, uh, her fantastic book, God and Anatomy. Hello, Francesca. How Professor Francesca. Hello, Professor. it's nice to see you again. Lovely to see you. You've been on Rahalistapur, of course, uh, and uh, love to have you we, And we did briefly talk about this book then. That was before publishing. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's, it's an amazing book, Francesca. It's... Uh, Really? It's, you know, it's, it's, I think so. It's very entertaining. It's academic and it's very clever. And I'm, I'm not claiming I understood all of it, but um, or followed all of it. I listened to it on the audio book, which is always a delight. But it's you no, know, it's very. You draw the readers in. It's it's and it's you know anyone who's interested in um, biblical criticism or what or who God is should definitely have a read or a listen. What was the genesis? I would have said that anyway. But it's, <laughs> Very clever now said to you. What where did this book come from for you? How, how did it all begin for you? Um I talk a little I talk a bit about it at the beginning of the book and that yeah. I, I I'm an atheist. I always have been, um, and definitely always will be, but I was always really curious about religion. I just I just thought not because I thought it was balmy, but because I thought I just didn't understand what motivated people to believe in otherworldly beings. And um, you know, there's some religion in my family, like my grandparents and that, but but yeah, so I went off to 
do my degree in theology at Oxford when I was 18 because I was just and I did a theology degree and Oxford it's like quite a kind of traditional sort of Christian Western Christian thing and everyone was religious and and so I was a bit of an outsider but I just found it really fascinating when no one was talking you know, so I started reading these biblical texts properly for the first time when I was at university and it seemed very obvious to me that this was a god who um, was like the ancient Greek gods and goddesses who had a body and um a temper and was kind of quite capricious um and and I just but no one was talking about that when I was at university and so in a way this is the book that I wanted to read when I was at university um and it's and it's you know obviously after my degree I went on and did my master's and my doctorate and specializing in all this kind of stuff and and I now teach it um so a lot of this has come out of the stuff that I do with my own students my own undergraduates um at Exeter and I just thought I'm gonna write this stuff down (laughs) And so I did. And here it is. And so it's basically the idea that we now view God uh, or generally people view God or the Christian God or the Jewish God as um, a sort of invisible force, a spirit Mm. somewhere up in heaven that that doesn't have a body. Yeah. Um, But uh, but your argument and your your research seems to show that certainly in pre-biblical times and a bit in biblical times. Yeah. Um, that uh, that he was considered to be like uh, basically a, a slightly big bloke. <laughs> Would that be a fair way of saying it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing because, you know, so Judaism and Christianity as we know them are very broadly speaking post-biblical religions in the sense that these religions developed after the texts that we find in what Christians call the Old Testament and Jewish people call Tanakh, after those texts were written and after the New Testament texts are written. So that idea that God is completely disembodied, immaterial, and the idea that that the spiritual realm, whatever that is, is completely immaterial. They're relatively late developments in the career of God. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in like this early history of the deity. Um, And I think we need to take seriously the fact that the biblical texts themselves, most of them are quite comfortable with the idea that God has a body and it's a male body it's human shaped it's kind of got male bits um and I think that's quite important um to kind of register that and to like grapple with it given you know the world and patriarchy (laughs) and and all that other stuff I think it's quite important to kind of recognize that this is a god that has changed massively over thousands of years Sure. And I think that's what I mean, I sort of like fancy myself as someone who's a little bit of a biblical scholar, but very early in the book, uh, I was I was sort of confronted with something that I'd never come across. I guess I've mainly sort of been interested in Jesus and the New Testament, not so much the Old Testament. Uh, but uh, there's a revelation quite early on. I don't want to give spoilers, but I'm going to have to uh, that Jesus, uh, that God, our God, Yahweh, if you want to call him that, if that's his name, um, has a dad. And yeah. lots of brothers, and is part of a, this panoply of, of gods rather than a than one god on his own. So, um, which presumably comes from mainly from from older texts than, than the Bible. Yeah, I mean things like a lot of the traditions that we have in the Bible, you know, have an earlier history, and so you get a lot of older mythology that's kind of being filtered through into these different biblical traditions. Like, you know, and that extends into the New Testament texts as well. But yeah, this idea that you know it was very much. This was a, a minor deity originally from, you know, quite a small, like, polytheistic context within a pantheon. He sort of gradually rises up through the ranks and takes on the roles and titles of his dad, um, the high god Ale. Um, and 
So in that sense, he's very similar to, you know, to exactly the sorts of deities that we find in ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia and Greece and Rome. So I kind of wanted to put him back in his natural habitat and sort of say, yeah. you know, where does where does this idea come from? And and even when you get to the point where this is a deity who is being portrayed in more monotheistic terms, so in other words, that he is the only deity, he's still not on his own in the heavenly realms. You know, he's still got kind of these other divine colleagues and peers and um and and it's that stuff is is rich throughout all the biblical texts and and it's great to see the bible in that way you know people think the bible's really boring or irrelevant you know if they're not believers and if they are believers they think it's absolutely god's yeah. truth and and i just wanted to show that the bible's neither of those things it's actually like far more interesting and fascinating and cool yeah and so all the brother all the brothers Oh, let's call them cousins. 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 Yeah. Have they sort of become, have they become like the angels? Is that that sort of, as as the story has progressed, they've become sort of angelic horde of people? Yeah, well, some of them, yeah, some of them have become sort of vilified. So someone like the figure of the Satan. um, Yeah. And there's a definite article in front of that name. I mean, Satan in Hebrew basically means something like adversary or tester or accuser. And he's basically... God's right hand man in in the book of Job, for example, he's like kind yeah. of his justice minister who goes around testing people, sort of policing the earthly realm a bit. But then he obviously he gets vilified and sort of relegated later on. But then other deities equally become very vilified, like the god Baal. Um, but then you get you know some of his divine messengers. These are kind of like like messengers, you know, that these sort of emissaries that kind of shuffle between the heavens and, and the earthly realm. They kind of get relegated into these kind of angelic figures but then they kind of get remythologized later they become gabriel and michael you know these kind of archangel figures um so yeah it's kind of it's a lot about adoption and adaption and recycling upcycling and downcycling of divine beings i mean it's very it's fascinating to see how really i mean i'm fascinated by that but about how religions all change and adapt and and become totally different things uh you would sort of think if you i mean in a way you would feel the earliest texts must be the most accurate text for, in terms of you were going to believe in something you think well I have to go right right to the beginning because obviously those will be those are the least diluted by human thought or whatever <laughs> even though it must all be a little bit but uh, but people don't you know religious people don't tend to I mean even really read their own the, the main books I think do they if you if you read just even the bible you'd get a lot of this stuff yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. So even when you read the Bible, like people think that, oh, the book of Genesis must be the earliest because it's talking about origins and beginnings of the cosmos. And it's at the very beginning of the Bible. But that's one of the latest books in the Old Testament. So like a more sort of mythologically, a lot of that, the older material is found in things like some of the old poems that you get in the Bible and some of the Psalms in the book of Job, even, which is quite a late text, but is like got very early poetic and mythological ideas in it. So mm-hmm. it's primarily comparing that mythology that's kind of threaded through the biblical texts with similar um, mythologies from close cultures, like, you know, ancient, what we call Canaanite cultures and Mesopotamian cultures, that you actually better understand the the broader mythological and cultural landscape. And that's that's where you need to locate that deity, not in this kind of world that's really shaped by Christianity and Judaism later on and the way it, it retrojects its preferred theology, its later theology back onto the text. You've got to put the text in their original cultural context. And some of these mm. are Iron Age and we need to, to see them in that way. Yeah. So Ale is the was the original God. And even in the in the Bible, like the the uh, the earlier prophets sort of seem to be worshipping Ale and then 
I quite enjoyed the bit I think where Yahweh comes along and goes, "It's me. It was it was me all along." I was yeah, pretending. Yeah. It is amazing. So like when when Moses Moses meets Yahweh in the book of Exodus, you know, there's the big scene at the burning bush and this voice is speaking to Moses out of the flames. And and Yahweh says, oh, yeah. So you know how um, your ancestors, Abraham and I, you know, you know how they were worshipping El Shaddai? And Moses, yes. And he says, well, actually, that was me. I mean, my name's Yahweh, really. But actually, you know, you know, I was only known to them by my name, El but actually it's, I mean, it's classic sort of spin doctoring. It's sort of trying to identify the God Yahweh with the older kind of God Ale and sort of bringing them together, like trying to say that these are one and the same. Um, yeah. When originally they were they were understood as two distinct deities. And you get reflections of how they're understood well, as distinct well, deities. That's, that's basically why the religions are changing, isn't it, in, throughout as we go through and why this whole uh, change from a bodily to a non-bodily God goes, because it, they're, you're trying to get more converts you're trying to you're trying to meld together two different groups of people who believe two opposing things and so you have to come up with compromises that that make those things work yeah and also you know that's how god how yahweh himself sort of changes i mean because these biblical texts are written in times of like massive cultural upheaval i mean you know invasion by the assyrians and kind of subjugation by them and then sort of destruction by the Babylonians and then the Persians come along and then the Greeks and then, the, you know. And so it's, it's like all of these kind of massive cultural shifts and the biblical texts are written primarily by elite urban people. Um, so they're really at the kind of the forefront of these massive political and cultural changes. And so, you know, their, their whole world is, is, is sort of falling apart around them quite often. And, and what do you do? You know, is this a deity who used to be a warrior god who used to fight for you? And now all of a sudden, you know, you're taken off into captivity to some foreign land. And you're like, well, what the hell does this mean about, about our deity? And so it's those sorts of cultural and political shifts that, that force a shift in theology. And that sort of changes the nature of the deity even more. So kind of by the time you're into the, the Greek period, when certain philosophical ideas are really starting to take hold about a distinction between the spiritual and the earthly um, and the material and the immaterial, that really starts to impact theology as well much later. So all of those things kind of mean that God, yeah, he's sort of like his body is gradually eradicated over centuries and centuries and centuries. So, you know, I, I was reading a few of the reviews of the book, which are mainly very, very good. And weirdly, the Church Times is is very behind it. Uh, the Times, the, uh, the correspondent in the Times was upset because... Uh, uh, they believe that it's clearly all the talk of God's body in the in the Bible is metaphorical. Yeah. Um, so, what makes you think that it isn't metaphorical and that it is actual in a, in in brief, without saying the whole book? Um, primarily because you look at the ways in which the deities were depicted, not just in terms of text, but in terms of icons and in terms of sort of visual culture, and they were very much understood to have human shaped bodies. Um, and so humans had God-shaped bodies. And so even when you do find, and even much later, post-biblical theologies, you know, people have a hard time letting go of the language of the body of God. So, for example, um, scholars are increasingly agreed, people in my field, that there probably were images of God that were used in worship. And that's why it's banned in one of the Ten Commandments. You know, you don't ban something unless yeah. people are doing it. Um, so God was understood, was imaged as having this God-shaped body. But even like later theologies, you know, people can't let go of the idea. We talk about God seeing us or hearing us or talking to us. You know, that's all, all that body language doesn't come simply out of metaphor. It comes out of 
you know, and we have archaeological evidence for the fact that people did conceive of their body, of, of gods as having human shaped bodies. And Yahweh was no different. I thought that review in the Times was really interesting because um, I say interesting in a very loose uh, sense, <laughs> um, because I clearly the reviewer and I know authors often say this, but clearly the reviewer hadn't bothered to read the introduction. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean it's like oh dudes just take the time to read the intro like I say to my students um but yeah but yeah it's been great I mean like the Church Times review was was um was surprisingly um positive um Church yeah. Times hasn't always liked me very much in what I do <laughs> uh, well you know but it's also obviously the very start of the Bible which isn't from the very start as you've just said but you know that God makes man in his in his image if he's if he doesn't have an image, then it you know there's there's plenty of clues in there that at least at some point. Yeah, and I mean that's been. the thing. And in in that passage, when he says he makes man in his image and likeness, those you know just a few two chapters later, the same language is used to talk about the physical likeness between Adam and one of his sons, and the same terms yeah. are used in the biblical text to talk about the likeness of cult statues to the gods that they represent. So when God's using that language, I mean, that's what, that's exactly what it means. It means a physical likeness, a, a visual corporeal likeness. And, you yeah, know, yeah. Jewish rabbis are completely happy with this idea in the sixth century, you know, fourth century, third century BC, like CE, they were totally happy with that idea. So it's, um, it's more of a hang up of kind of a certain kind of Christian male, I think, um, <laughs> is, is my experience than it is anybody else. Yeah, but people, you know, it's it's a obviously when you're a, a biblical scholar and you're not religious yourself as well, there's a, an extra level to it. People who have strong beliefs about something don't want those beliefs challenged. It's sort of what religion's about, isn't it? It's sort of the reason why these things have all changed because they're trying to get a group of people all to believe the same stuff and questioning it makes it fall apart. So, you know, anyone questioning anything is a problem, but um, like I say, I just sort of think like if you're going back to the pre, <laughs> going to the original sources, it's harder to argue with those than the, the later ones, which obviously have been uh, influenced by by human thoughts. But um, you know, it, it's it's crazy to me that people can believe something and then not want to. You know, if you really believe it, there's there's no problem in people asking questions, and so anything that doesn't let you ask questions is suspicious immediately. Isn't it? I think that's exactly right. And you know, you think about like the Bible itself, the Christian Bible and the Jewish Bible, like the the biblical writers and the earliest compilers of all these texts were really happy with the idea of contradiction and challenge and questioning their beliefs and their faith because you've got so many contradictions. Like, look at you know, you've got four gospels, for example, in the New Testament, right? Four different versions of the Jesus story none of which like exactly match up plus all the other gospels that didn't make it into the final collection um which are even more crazy which we you and I talked about when we last saw each other um mm. but these ancient compilers these ancient religious thinkers were completely comfortable with the idea of differences of opinion and challenge so for people today to kind of say well that's not you know the bible doesn't, doesn't say that and they're actually you know you need to sit more comfortably i always tell my students this sit more comfortably with the idea of contradiction and ambiguity and challenge because the, the bible itself is sits comfortably with those ideas as well mm. um so we've got this very strange sense of treating the bible like it's some kind of extraordinary object you know but what my book does i hope i've shown is that like let, let's look at these texts like we look we would look at ancient greek mythologies and, and legends and traditions yeah. you know why should we treat this god of the bible and these biblical texts any differently than we would any other kind of ancient literature from from this time and place um so yeah that's what this book does 
and also go back and worship Ale because he's the original one and he's been knocked off by this yeah. usurper. So you're worshiping the wrong god, guys. Go back. Because <laughs> Ale, so you're saying, did you say this in the book that Israel, I mean, you know, is is that that's sort of the clue that God, the original God was Ale because Israel is named after Ale. I mean, that Ale is the theophoric element, yeah. the divine name yeah. in that. But and you've got this yeah. story in Genesis where Jacob, like the great founder of Israel, one of the great ancestors, who he's, he he builds an altar to Ale, the Ale, the God of Israel. You know, it's, it's spelled out very clearly um, yeah. in the Hebrew. So yeah. Oh, well, it's it's all very interesting. We'll talk a bit more about the book. I mean, I, I um, what it's I think again as a lay person, it's great that you um, you often the way into a subject in this book is is a, a, another example or a modern example. You, you talk about walking in the in God's footsteps in Syria and uh, um, a hidden Michelangelo sculpture, which is very interesting that got uh, that got hidden away because there was a uh, imperfection in Jesus' yeah. face yeah. on the marble right at the end, which must have been annoying for Michelangelo. I, I know, can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> Just at the end as well. Uh, you know, there's comparisons with Trump and stuff. So there's there's lots of things to, to draw you in. Was that, because I think you're a very entertaining writer. And, it's, and again, I think that often is, uh, some academics don't like someone being funny or, mm. or being interesting <laughs> or not being dry. Is that an important part of the writing process for you to use your own humour and your own experience? Oh, definitely. Like, because, I mean, as I said, like this book in some ways comes out of my teaching. It's how I, it's how I do my lectures at, at work, you know. It's like, how do you draw students in? Like most of whom yeah. are either going to think this is really boring or difficult. So how do you draw the students in? It's the same way, how do you draw the readers in? And And the thing is, this stuff is fun. Do you know what I mean? Like, just because it's about religion doesn't mean say we should take it so bloody seriously. And it's and it is the most fascinating subject. So like, how can it not be fun? But I think yeah, when I was writing, I wanted, you know, this is what I think. This is this is the way I understand it, and this is the way that I want people to to get as excited about this ancient stuff as I am. And so by you know using comparisons like in you know <laughs> with Donald Trump's kind of um, <laughs> Donald Trump's kind of penis problems. Um, and, and nuclear war problems, um, but classed yeah. as a phallic kind of um, insecure phallic masculinity. But, you know, things like that and Michelangelo sculptures and, you know, the discovery of various other ancient artefacts I talk about and what we do with dead bodies. Like all of that stuff is is important because it context. like in some ways the book is just as much about our own bodies and what it is to be human as it is about God's body. Um, and so I think that's what most interests me is the way in which you can find these parallels and these sorts of these weird juxtapositions that actually help you to understand ancient cultures and these ancient societies much more clearly. It definitely, it definitely, definitely works. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. 
Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And, and when you're writing something like this, I, do you have... Do you have an audience in mind or are you are you trying to broaden out so that it's you can sell as many copies as possible <laughs> or are you you know because it's a very, it is a very academic book and it is you know it is there's there's good thinking in there and it's turning around a whole uh, you know school of thought about the bible which sort of is an so it's an incredible revolutionary book but it is also something i think that people can pick up in in an airport if they if they're going on a long holiday it's not a short book no, no, no well, God's God's not a short man. So yeah, but like, but yeah, like, so I had two. It's, I think being an academic is really weird because you have to, because you're not, you know, most of the time I write for other academics, and so yeah. um, you're kind of joining a conversation that's been going on in my field for centuries, and you're joining it at a certain level. Whereas writing this, obviously, you can't expect that anybody would know anything about the, the Bible. Um, so on the one hand, I've got a load of academics sitting on my shoulder when I'm writing and I'm terrified about what they're going to say, because being an atheist <laughs> and a woman in my field is really hard anyway. Um, and and so it's, you know, and people, there's a lot of intellectual snobbery as well in academia. So a lot of other academics would not deign to lower themselves to write a book for for the ordinary educated member of the public. Um, so on the one hand, I've got all these academics sitting on my shoulder and I'm writing. And then on the other, I've got my mum and my undergraduates so I'm thinking that they're the people that I'm writing for if I can explain it sufficiently so that they get it and they understand then I know that I'm I'm communicating the ideas well yeah and these these books can break through obviously into a mass audience as well you know they, they they're even quite uh academic physics books and uh history books can can break through so and I hope that, you know I really hope this has done and will continue to do uh, it's also very enjoyable. I'm an audiobook fan. I listen to most of this on audiobook. They also have the have a copy of the book. Um, but um, uh, you did it yourself as well, which is is not so usual. But did you enjoy the process of doing that? No, it was awful. It was so horrendous. <laughs> that that's not thinking. Why the hell did I write such a bloody long book? Yeah, because it, it yeah it was. But and also because I. <laughs> it's so hard not to do voices like not to do the voices when I was <laughs> so you're reading these biblical texts and often it's like you know Yahweh says this and God says yeah. that and and it's so hard to to not kind of slide into whoa 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 whoa, whoa <laughs> when I'm doing Yahweh's voice um and so, something slightly more effeminate for Jesus and so like <laughs> I'm gonna get in so much trouble <laughs> but that was really hard not to do the comedy voices like I yeah. often do in lectures um and, you know, sliding into little bits of Monty Python kind of style voices as well, you know, for like, it's really difficult. But yeah, yeah. so doing the audiobook was was hard. Um, well, it was it was fun to hear you. There's lots of sort of sweary bits and sexy bits in it. And it's kind of fun to hear you, you know, saying lots of swear words and stuff. You don't get to, you know, people might enjoy the book just for that. Yeah. For that I don't mean, for that alone. That's, I was thinking, I was once, um, a guy once <laughs> tweeted me years ago asking for photos of my feet. Um, obviously I did not, uh, I did not give 
him photos of my feet. Um, but I've had a few things like that. And, and there are certain points in the book when I thought, you know what, I do get some weird kind of fan mail. Um, and I, there are some bits in this book that I expect some people are quite going to enjoy, but not mm -hmm. for the reasons that I would want them to. Well, yeah, I, I know I did. Yeah, I was so, going to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's good. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it's when it, I, I mean, the, the thing with the audio books and academic books, I think, is if you, well, all books a little bit, it's, it's if you lose the chain of thought, that's the great thing about having a book is you can go back and work out who's who. And so with it, it but I think this book, you know, it was, I main even though I'm walking my dog and think you go off and start thinking about something else. But it, but it did work as an audio book, which I think is a is a is a great compliment because I think when something's this um, complicated, it's quite hard to you know to keep your listener engaged and also just in there. So it's it's worth buying as an audio book if you're an audio audio book fan. How many days did it take to record this audio book? Oh God, it felt like I was in the recording studio. I did it last <laughs> summer, and it felt like I was there like every single day. I think it took two weeks. Right, like yeah. doing four hours a day for two weeks. No, that's that's long. I try. I I would do a little bit. I do a little bit longer day, but yeah, I I, I I don't know how long that would take me. My my books usually take a couple of days to do, but they're not. They're nothing compared to this. Um, although I've got, I've just finished my latest book. I've just uh, sent in the not quite final, but hopefully final copy. Uh, and I do quote. You know, I, I do quote, quote your book in my book. Didn't you? Thank yeah, you. So I'm talking about. I'm talking, it's all about testicles. My book. So. Um, oh yeah. It's talking about the Sumerian stuff, which uh, about Enki. Oh, Enki creating. masturbating and yeah, yeah, which, yeah. Uh, but then also the uh, fruct, the oh, Yahweh fructifying with uh, the oh, earth of yeah. Israel, Israel. And, yeah, uh, and having sex. So yeah, so thank you for that. So you are, you know, you've given me an academic, an extra academic level to my mainly bawdy book about testicles, but. Um, <laughs> so there, you know, there is, there is, there's lots of fun stuff in this, and obviously, uh, we, I think last time we did talk about uh, God's penis, which obviously comes uh, comes up, yeah. the coming of the Lord comes up a lot. I, I was also enjoyed uh, God's bum makes an appearance. I didn't know he would necessarily have a bum. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, yeah, like, yeah. look at the Sistine Chapel. Michelangelo paints God's bum. I mean, his bum, you know, Michelangelo was he was pretty good on his biblical texts. Um, yeah, but God's bum makes an appearance and, you know, did God defecate or not? And did Jesus defecate or not? And did Moses defecate or not? I mean, people were obsessed for quite a few centuries about whether whether divine divine figures actually defecated. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of stuff and the shit gods obviously um, are in there. So, yeah. Do you think, do you think, do you think God defecated? Because that it would be odd to have all the system. If he's got a bum hole, my son's obsessed with bum holes. And he asked me if goats have bum holes, but I think equally you could ask if if God has a bum hole, because that implies he, you know, eats food and yeah, and, yeah. And they, they, you you think he does, right? You think he eats food and and so he would need to get rid of his food. I suspect so, but I mean, so on the one hand, God's dad, Ale, we've got this myth about him defecating. I mean, he gets so drunk that he literally shits himself, um, yeah. <laughs> pisses himself. Um, so you'd imagine that if if you know those if Ale, his dad, could do that, then theoretically so could Yahweh but Yahweh but the biblical writers they're very happy about the idea of the god Baal defecating but they they don't they stop themselves kind of thinking that their own deity could but then you know you just because you've got a bum hole so to speak doesn't mean to yeah. say that you could defecate so in, with all the early Christian debates about Jesus and whether he did or not people would say some very eminent theologians Christian thinkers would argue that yes um Jesus did eat food properly, but he was miraculously constipated because they didn't like the idea of Jesus producing 
what they basically called corrupted matter, so shit, mm. basically. So they said that he could control his body so much that he he could eat whatever he wanted, but had no need to defecate. Hmm. Hmm. Well, you know, but it's possible. He could have just defecated something nice. It could have just changed it into flower petals or something. Yeah, and some people did argue that. They sort of basically okay. said that he defecated kind of almost like a kind of a, a perfumed ungent. Um, <laughs> so some people did. <laughs> um well i you know i don't don't want to like go too much into the the detail of all the 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 different bits and pieces just because um you know i want people to be able to read the book and and find that stuff out but uh you do basically all the body parts get a get a mention right down to uh, genitalia and hands and feet um and uh, i think all that stuff about the um uh, the holy of holies in those early temples is very interesting where there where there's there's sort of the idea was that the god actually whoever's god and who, whichever god you was yours for your tribe sort of lived in inside that holy of holies so he w- was actually not just a, a body but was a body who was who was there so those footprints that we talked about that was they're made to look like he's he's walked in or yeah, like the deity, like literally striding into the temple. I mean, it is yeah, amazing, yeah. and that is very much a sense. I think there's something that you know, atheist that I am. I think there's something that's lost from a lot of modern day religions is the sense that somehow these sacred buildings simply represent the place at which you can have some kind of formal communication with your deity. Because in in you know, back in the day, this these places literally were where the deity was was held to be. You were in literally in the presence of the deity, and I think that's an amazing thing like you know you you get that kind of it's almost as if again I am this cold stone-hearted atheist but you know going somewhere like Stonehenge or into ancient you know very ancient churches or some of these early temples and stuff you, you you do kind of get a sense that these are more than just ordinary places that these are somehow um yeah otherworldly in some way and I think it's a real shame that you know that people don't make more of that in their own religions. So, you know, I, I think I'd, yeah. I'd be a lot more interesting, interested in, in being a believer if if someone said to me, the deity is actually here. I mean, and not just in, you know, bread and wine, as in yeah. behind this person. Well, I would believe it if I went in and I saw him. So, you know, that's that's what I, that's that's what it would take for me. But um, and why do you think why do you think this out of all these potential desert gods and all these different areas? What was it? Is it just chance that this one is? The one that's that's dominated, or is it? Is there some reason why Yahweh kind of appealed more? Or is it just that you know some brilliant publicist, or is it? Because they because it was basically the temple was destroyed, right? And he was and, and yeah, it was destroyed and, temple, and then rebuilt. So it's destroyed in the sixth century BCE yeah. in Jerusalem, then rebuilt in the fifth century BCE, and then finally destroyed again by the Romans in the first century CE. So, um. In some ways, it's in some ways it's chance that it was this particular deity that that happened to be um, become the most important, simply because this happened to be the deity who became the sort of the patron god of this Judahite community, you know, whose whose central temple was in Jerusalem. Um, but I think because of the relationship, because Christianity emerged out of Judaism, and because of the importance of text, the idea that somehow texts became authoritative so once you've got a religion that's writing its stuff down and the texts themselves become not just authoritative in terms of teaching but become iconic they literally become iconic they replace statues of the gods so the the scrolls within you know pre-christianity the scrolls of judaism become 
sort of almost function like a statue of a god would have functioned in the older forms of Yahweh worship. And then gradually, you know, with the emergence of Christianity, um, texts became really important for kind of spreading that particular inflection of Judaism around, because obviously, you know, the Jesus movement was a Jewish movement. So texts become important for kind of communicating that around the Mediterranean. And once, you know, and once it's around the Roman Roman Empire and, and it becomes kind of adopted officially, so they say, um, mm. as the re, the religion of the Roman Empire, then then obviously it, it's it's gonna this god is is firmly implanted in the West as as the the deity. Um, but do you think do you think way back in you know before two thousand three thousand years before Christ, if a different if just a, like a different battle had turned out differently, or a, do you think it could have been a different god, or do you think this was it was there was something special, particularly. That I don't think he was particularly special, but I think the fact that he got rid of his pantheon very early on, yeah. I think the fact that he got rid of his wife early on, I think the fact that it became a very masculinist, um, patriarchal kind of. I think I think that is one of the reasons why people are so keen <laughs> to hang on to it because, um, yeah. So I, yeah, men. Yeah, it's it's down to men and power. Good, that's good to know. Well done to us. Uh, and and uh, the, I mean, I suppose the, the the Holy Trinity thing, which is also discussed, the Father, the Son, and uh, the, the the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, which I'd never really understood. But that again is another attempt to to bring together just th- these all these different ideas and smash them together, so he can be a he can be corporal and not corporal and uh, alive and not alive and here and not here. That exactly. So like, I think there's. There's lots of things going on with the, the idea of the Trinity. I mean, it's not in the Bible itself. It's not in the New Testament. The only thing that's in the New Testament is Jesus saying um, in, in the Gospels, he instructs his disciples to go out and baptise in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So that's what the earliest Jesus followers were doing. They were baptising new members into their guild like by means of this three-part formula. So by the time, like, you know, so people think, well, is this, are these three different deities or are these, you know, what's going on? So by the time you get the early kind of church fathers, agonizing about this and trying to insist that they are still monotheistic even though they blatantly look polytheistic um so they kind of invent they come up with the notion of you know they sort of try to describe how the trinity is in fact one in three and three in one and yeah. you're quite right it, it's it's um it is illogical um <laughs> theological philosophy is illogical um but on the other hand you've also got this sense in which like christianity is also keen, you know, if Jesus hadn't been properly human, then he couldn't have properly died, which means that he couldn't have properly, you know, resurrected. So the insistence that Jesus had to be fully human and fully God was so important that it rendered everything about a divine body, about the bodiliness of the divine. It rendered it almost like it had to be exclusive to Christianity alone. Otherwise, this miraculous event of God becoming for flesh incarnate, dying, and then rising up again is 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 meaningless. It's nothing. And yeah. so I think it's it's that particular emphasis on the idea that Christians had to have the the exclusive claim on kind of divine corporeality, like that it was their god. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why they, philosophically and culturally speaking, they were so keen to dismiss the idea that God had ever had a body before that. Yeah. But obviously, it- the texts say something different. Yeah, well, it's it's absolutely fascinating. I do encourage everyone uh, to to buy this book uh, and have a read. It's very interesting stuff. Um, 
Does, is, is this something like just in turn, because I usually ask about how you get something published and stuff, but obviously like an academic book or a, a book from an academic is sort of slightly different. Maybe it's kind of hard to just write, write an academic book and send it in. Is it, is it, did, did, was this something you, how long were you working on it and, and how easy was it to find a publisher for it or was it the other way around? Um, it's weird because, yeah, I've written a lot of academic monographs and books and yeah. stuff like that. And they're kind of relatively easy to get published because you don't get paid for them. Um, which is amazing so like <laughs> academic press is like yeah fine <laughs> but um but this book was different I was approached by my now agent my literary agent who had um he he had seen me on various tv things and had written to me saying I think you should write a book for, for you know for the ordinary reader and I was like don't be ridiculous I can't do that I'm an academic like well, I, I can't write in a way that's in, <laughs> interesting and, and intelligent and kind of entertaining um but then I thought actually maybe I could do that and so, yeah, like it was a very different process, like try, getting it published. It was it was great. I mean, that we had it went into one of those competitive publishers bidding high amounts okay. of money to have it, which was amazing. Um, yeah. But writing it is the hardest thing I've ever written in my life. Like, as I said, I've written loads of academic books and fine, I can do those until the cows come home. But this was so hard because I was trying to communicate really complex scholarly ideas and research and debates trying to communicate that in a way that's not boring and it's not off-putting and isn't dumbing down either yeah. that is so hard so it took me took me longer to write than I thought it would like I, I started writing in year one and realized I hadn't actually written anything at all <laughs> like literally <laughs> hadn't written anything <laughs> I've sort of done a lot of sunbathing that year and thinking about how am I going to write this um but then yeah like so it took about four years and obviously COVID didn't yeah. help um, just in terms of getting a lot of the stuff that I needed for research that was really yeah. hard but yeah but I've I it was the hardest thing I it's the hardest thing I've ever written but I loved it like it, I loved yeah. it yeah and is that you do have you got another book is there are there more lined up have you got another one yeah there's another one time? coming but I haven't quite decided um okay. enough about it yet to talk about it but yeah there's there's another one coming great um, well, look, uh, thanks so much for giving us uh, so much of your time and talking about your fantastic book, God and Anatomy, Francesca Stavrakopoulou. You've got, to change your, you've got to change your name so it's more it's Do you easy know what? to Google. I know, stuff. I know. I got married a few months ago. And, um, oh, yes. and my husband said, thank you. And my husband said, <laughs> are you going to change your name? I said, of course I'm not going to change my name. <laughs> and then and I said, would you like to take my name instead? And he said, don't be ridiculous. You know, your name is actually... <laughs> <laughs> yeah so the name stays but and i no, know good, it, it terrifies everybody but um but you did you, you're super good at it i know i love it oh, i do love it really <laughs> the, second, the francesca's hard you can change to francesca yeah. change that to something easier to say and that will be that will be very good uh look, look thank you very much francesca for doing this thank you to uh chris evans not that one for all his help on this is and happy birthday it's his birthday today francesca and he's sitting there listening to this I know, happy yeah. birthday yeah. He'll be all confused by <laughs> what have you done? You won't understand what's going on. Um, do go and buy Francesca's book. We'll be back next week. I don't know who's the next book club's going to be, so we'll. That's a very exciting thing to find out. Thank you very much. See you next time. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping 
and 365 day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. RichardHerring.com slash ballback slash tour or RichardHerring.com slash gigs for all of the information on the tour. GoFasterStripe.com for lots of downloads and books and lots of fun. Thanks for listening. Go and listen to another one. Tell your friends about the show. Tell your friends about the tour. I love you all. I'm out.